a long overdue catch-up, election memes, and how the Australian internet was indelibly changed by a chance encounter at the PM's 11. This is the Australian Meme Review. Hello and welcome back to the Australian Meme Review, a podcast about the news and culture of the Australian internet. My name is Cameron Wilson and apologies for my co-host, Joe Hildebrand, who couldn't be here today. Yes, it's been a while. I moved to regional West Australia. The internet's a bit patchy over here, but I'm back. And I know what you're thinking, a podcast about the internet, a topic that infamously moves on extremely quickly. I'm sure I'll hear some up-to-date coverage about what's happening. That's why I've decided to come back with what is an essentially an election special. After the headlines, you'll hear from Twitter user Mesut Ozil, whose run-in with an Australian politician was a formative moment in not only his life, but Australian Twitter culture. Then, internet scholar Emma Balfour will join the chat room to talk about her research into how internet culture plays a role in politics, which I recorded in the lead-up to the federal election. All right, it's time to log on. This is The Headlines, the segment about what's making news. And given the amount of time that's passed between drinks, I'm only going to hit the really big stuff. Unfortunately, most of them aren't a lot of fun, so apologies in advance for that. First up, on the 15th of March this year, an Australian gunman shot and killed 51 people in Christchurch, New Zealand. It was described as a massacre that was made to go viral. It was designed to take advantage of the internet's infrastructure to spread a message of hate. The shooter was radicalised on 8chan, which is an image board that's famous for being a cesspit of racism, sexism, Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. The shooter posted a heads up, a copy of his manifesto before he set off to commit the atrocity. The manifesto was written in the language of the internet. It was rife with cultural war references. It was crafted to be quoted, screenshot and shared. The shooting at the first mosque was live streamed on Facebook. 1.5 million copies of the video were uploaded to YouTube in the first 24 hours. It's obviously been a while since it all happened and it's pretty heavy for this podcast and it's not something that is clearly just about the Australian internet culture but I think it's still worth reflecting that the person who did this was made in Australia. He soaked in our culture and this is what he chose to do and we should interrogate how this happened. Like many others, I've chosen not to amplify his message or his name. What I hope people will remember are his victims and the price that their families and friends have paid. Okay, so I'm not going to waste any time debating whether Israel Folau should have been sacked from Rugby Australia for his post that all homosexuals are going to hell. Although I will point out that polling said that two-thirds of Australians said that Folau should take responsibility for his views and half of the country thinks he's used his public platform to attack a minority group. What I'm interested in is how it's a reminder that a lot of the power of what gets said on the Australian internet is concentrated into the hands of a surprisingly few. Crowdfunding platform GoFundMe kicked off Israel Folau's appeal for $3 million to pay for his legal bills to challenge Rugby Australia's decision. Um, GoFundMe was caught absolutely flat-footed and they gave Israel Folau and his supporters exactly what they wanted. They made him into a martyr by kicking him off the platform. But even still, it showed the power that they have. A company was able to make a decision just like that. 
Of course, that's their right as a private company, and you might be okay with this specific use of their power, but what if the decision went the other way? What if it was a pro-LGBT group that was kicked off for moral reasons? It reminds me of when the CEO of a company that makes a product called Cloudflare, which is a product that a lot of the internet's websites use, they decided to stop offering this service to the world's foremost neo-Nazi website. When he decided to do it, the CEO wrote an email to his company saying this. He said, I woke up this morning in a bad mood and decided to kick them off the internet. It was a decision that I could make because I'm the CEO of a major internet infrastructure company. Now, that was in 2017, and and since then, there's only been more consolidation of power into a few companies' hands. The truth is that a small number of people decide, for all intents and purposes, what is allowed on the internet that the majority of us use. Now, in the first episode, you'll remember I spoke about Australia's anti-encryption bills that were rushed through at the end of last year. Since then, a federal election has come and gone. The government was re-elected. The Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security that Labor said it would try and pursue changes through was unable to agree on any changes to the legislation. So it really doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon. Just to show you how it's going, I took a spattering of the headlines about this law in the past month alone. Um, The Guardian says that a cybersecurity researcher said that the new legislation has given the AFP power to strike a chilling blow against press freedom. Nine says that a government contractor told them that firms are blacklisting Australia over encryption laws, and also that startups are starting to feel the bite of encryption laws and called it an appalling piece of legislation. Uh, ZDNet said that Telstra said that the latest technology could be missing Australia due to encryption laws. So I think judging from all this, you can probably tell how privacy advocates and the technology sector think this legislation is going. Okay, a a brief reprieve from all the doom and gloom. The National Library of Australia has opened up its archive of Australian internet pages. Um, Since the 1990s, the NASH has been annually saving versions of Australian web pages, much like other sites do for web pages all around the world. Um, For your viewing pleasure, the NASH has also curated some of the best ones that you can easily find, including sites belonging to Australian political parties. Uh, There's great ones for musicians. And weirdly, they've decided to also choose some guys' shoe and foot-related blogs. There's concern that the cultural footprints that we leave online are either owned by someone else, like Google and Facebook, and so you have no control over what happens to them and whether they stay or go, or will just prove to be ephemeral. The the Nash is doing their bit to make sure that people will be able to read Whirlpool posts about how to avoid paying superannuation for years to come. And finally, there are two scandals that Australians weren't supposed to talk about. So you couldn't find anything in the media about them, but if you searched social media, you would get all the details on the evidence and verdict of child molester Cardinal George Pell and the identity of a mobster lawyer termed informant Lawyer X, aka Nicola Gobbo, which were both legal secrets. In both cases, Victorian courts granted suppression orders, which meant that you weren't supposed to talk about them, but of course these legal directives were made for a pre-internet world. Today, anyone with an internet connection can spread a message to a global audience of millions, and that's exactly what happened. (laughs) 
Now, a lot has been written about Mark Latham, the former federal Labor leader and now One Nation member in New South Wales Parliament. But almost all of it fails to mention that one day, according to Twitter user Mesut Ossel, offers a key to understanding the psyche of a public figure who's gone through what appears to be a radical transformation in politics and disposition. I spoke to Messet in the lead-up to the New South Wales election about how he's harnessed the power of Twitter to draw attention to this chance run-in with Mr Latham and why it's become one of the defining memes of Australian online culture. Welcome to the studio. How are you going? Not too bad yourself? Yeah, good. Now, they say when we experience a seismic event, it divides our lives into two parts, what we had before and what came afterwards. Can you take us back to before, the day of the PM's 11 in early 2016? Um, what happened in the lead-up to your encounter with a Australian politician? Well, it was an incredibly normal day, actually. So, yeah, it was a cricket match, a day-nighter. started around 2 in the afternoon. So I'd just gone to get some beers for me and my mates. So I was walking along, you know, holding the tray with four beers in it, sort of like, you know, focusing on not spilling it or anything. And I looked up and saw this person walking towards me and, they were looking a bit dishevelled, but I sort of caught their eye and thought, is that Mark Latham? And, like, I looked away, and then, like, it was, you know, like those cartoonish sort of double takes. And that was about, I was like, God damn, that's Mark Latham. And, yeah, so why it was a bit weird was, um, so, yeah, so famously the things that he was wearing was uh, dirty polo and oversized shorts. But to be a bit more specific, it was this kind of, like, darkish green polo, but with, I suppose, three to four rather large, I guess, like, dirt stains on them. And um, the shorts, it wasn't just like, so these are like khaki shorts. It wasn't just that they were like long or big. It's just like, like he must have had like a belt doing a lot of work there because they looked massive. Like they were clearly four sizes too large. So it wasn't just a, a, like a fit of cargo shorts, like the dad fit where it's, you know, past your knee. These were comically large. Comically, comically, yeah. What was his demeanour? How was he carrying himself? Really oddly, like, he was quite stiff, his head was down, and, like, I suppose this has never made the meme because it just, I suppose, a bit too much, um, but he was wearing, like, you know, like, the sort of hat your dad wears to, like, do the lawn mowing, like, every week for 40 years? It was, like, this wide-brimmed, like, but the brim was, like, drooping and loose, and, yeah, he just had this kind of, like, he was kind of staring at the ground and walking strangely. It was very odd. And he was by himself as well? He, ah, uh, so... So I know that he was there with his kids because he has replied to me a couple of times, um, but he, he was by himself at that time, yeah. So this is a moment that has clearly burnt into your memory. When did you first decide to start talking about it? Well, the, the first time I tweeted about it was actually the next day, but it wasn't sort of like, it was a bit different to what it is now. So I think just like the next day, um, Tiger Webb like from the ABC had just posted something about Mark Latham. So I just responded to him saying, oh, I saw Latham yesterday. He looked like he was a homeless man or something. And then I think I posted that a few more times. And then what what really started it was because that was, it was not that long after Latham had been outed as like running his own real Mark Latham account by, um, was it Mark DiStefano, I think? Yeah, so or Mark DiStefano, um, who was working for BuzzFeed Australia at the time, revealed that the person running a um, Twitter account called Real Mark Latham and abusing people, including um, domestic abuse survivor Rosie Batty, was in fact uh, the real Mark Latham. Yeah, yeah. So it was, not, it was not long after that. So I think because he was sort of like being this kind of weird rogue character online, I just started replying to him whenever he would say something. So at the start, it was just like, I think I just kept replying to him saying, like, why, why won't you admit that you were wearing, like, a dirty polo at the cricket and that sort of thing? And then 
he just kept going. And so, like, whatever he would say, I would just kind of twist it to be about that. Because I remember, like, one in particular, he was talking about how, like, we need to reform Islam or something like that. So, you know, I just replied to it, like, how are you going to reform Islam when you can't even wear clean clothes at the cricket? And, like, people just started liking it. I suppose it went from there. <laughs> so you've kept it up for about three years now. Why do you keep it going? Mostly just because I think it's really funny. But <laughs> I guess, like, I think, like, there's, there's more than enough things out there that Mark Latham says and does that are, like, pretty odious. And I think a lot of other people are much better qualified or positioned to combat those. I just think it's kind of funny to continue this thing that, like, he knows about and that makes him angry, but it's about something that's just fundamentally so silly. So you said it makes him angry. Has he ever directly responded to it? Yeah, so at this like at the start he didn't for ages and then at one point he responded to one of the tweets, I think, just to say something like I think he just said like my head looked funny or something like that. And then he started calling me Steptoe, which I had no idea what that meant, but I looked it up and it's just <laughs> kind of this like weird looking child from like a sixties T V show, which I think is a bit like a pretty big burn on me, but at the same time like just a bizarre reference for anyone to have. And then, um, and then, yeah, the, the day came when he actually blocked me and did it in the most insane way possible, which was, like, I didn't even at him. He just responded to one of my tweets to say that he'd spoken to my GP who has confirmed that I'm obsessed with him and therefore he must block me, <laughs> which, like, he had two years to think of a response and came up with, like, the most demented one possible. That was an insane day because not long after, so I'd announced that Latham had blocked me, which I think he's probably blocked almost no one else because he's a weird free speech dude. Um, and I, so I put up the thing that he'd blocked me and someone went and made a Twitter moment where they kind of threaded every single post I'd ever made about it. So I put that out. And so I think that morning I had about 600 followers and by the same time the next day I had about 1,300. And that was quite insane. <laughs> How has um, everyone else responded to it? Everyone's been really good about it. Like, like, people, I think, really enjoy it because, I, I don't know, I think it is just that it's fundamentally really silly. And, and like, the, like, you know, it's that, that, like, the wording is pretty much the same every time, but no matter the context or tense of the post, it always refers to the place and how long ago it was, which I think, for me, I think is the funniest part of it somehow, more than the fact of what he was wearing. There's still plenty of questions to be asked about it, but I think one of the interesting things about how you've um, spoken about this is, like you said before, you, you managed to to take quite a simple um, meme format, which is you just repeat the details of what is a silly event and twist it into um, into into different ways. Are there any uh, particular posts that you're proud of? Yeah, so I think, I think usually I could just try and put it against like whatever the sort of like topic of the day is or something that a lot of people are talking about. There's a one really stupid one that is, I think it was at the time where there was a bunch of stuff about like the Robert Mueller, Robert Mueller, however you say it, report. And so it's like this um, thing of how to like translate the findings of the Robert Mueller report into a way you can understand. And so it's like sort of talks about how like, person one or whatever the thing in the report is Mark Latham and, and the, like the reporting is his clothes and all this kind of stuff. Like, I thought that one was pretty weird and funny. And then I think just otherwise, um, just all the ones that are, um, for a while, Mark Latham himself was putting up memes. Um, uh, very strange ones that I think some like cabal of like weird alt-right Australians were doing on his behalf. And there was one that was about like a 
person who wants to change Australia Day starter pack. Like, you know those starter pack memes where it's like a few pictures of it and that. And so I just took that and it was just a picture of a dirty polo and some large shorts. And he got insanely mad in response to it. And that made me very happy. (laughs) So finally, uh, New South Wales residents are headed to the polls in a few weeks. And um, Mark Latham will be hoping for their votes as he stands for uh, the Liberal Democrats. um, And there's a good chance he'll make it. So is there any message that you'd have for the voting public? um, Anything that you'd like them to know so they can make an educated decision when they go to the ballot box? Sure. I mean, I think all I would have to say is, and I can't stress this enough, that Mark Latham wore a dirty polo and oversized shorts to the PM's Levin in Canberra three years ago. Is a meme a political act? In the lead-up to the federal election, your feed was probably overrun with memes from official and unofficial political sources. But in the situation where it's not an authorised political advertisement, should the act of maybe slapping some text over a photo be considered in the same category as joining a party or protesting? Earlier this year, I spoke to Emma Balfour, who's done research in the role of memes in US elections and how it can be part of political participation. G'day, Emma. Good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to to be here to talk about my extremely dumb thesis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, you and I are both uh, meme scholars. Uh, Your uh, credentials are a bit more... Um, proven, but you know, I like to think I'm also uh, an academic in this sense. But maybe for the layperson, can you just give us the most succinct definition of what a meme is? So, a meme is any sort of artifact of culture that can be passed on through repetition. Uh, that that was the original definition, as defined by. Richard Dawkins, uh, which I'm sure you're very aware of, um, but examples he gave is like, you know, a nursery rhyme is mimetic. It's it's a meme. You, you teach it to people and then they pass it on by repeating it. Um, within the modern context, obviously it's, you know, an online joke or an online inside joke, basically, and whether that's passed on through video, through audio, through text, through, a, you know, an image or a combination of all of those, it's it's any sort of cultural artifact that just gets spread through repetition, retweets, reblogs, likes, you know, that sort of stuff. Exactly. And that kind of remixing that kind of happens within it. Everyone would know it when they see it. In your thesis, you mount an argument that memes are actually a form of participatory politics. How is that the case? There was a concept that I came across when I was researching my thesis. So my thesis focused particularly on memes in left-wing spaces in the uh, mainly in the primaries of the 2016 election. So I, I came across this concept of participatory politics. So the form of, of form of politics where you are active, you're not just sort of reading what's happening, you're, you're doing stuff. So that could be activism, that's kind of participatory politics. Um, or holding a consciousness rating group. That's a kind of participatory politics. And I uh, really liked the idea that this writer, whose name I cannot remember, but uh, this writer put forward the idea that memes themselves could be a form of participatory politics because it's a way you're engaging with the political culture, um, but it's sort of become its own culture in and of itself. So while it is a form of political culture and, and, and political communication. It's also uh, separate in that it's it's also part of this sort of broader meme and online culture. So I, I think it's a really interesting way for people to use something that's very accessible to them to talk about bigger ideas and concepts, whether that's throwing a mustache on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and calling yourself a right-wing edgelord, or whether it's 
you know, making a full Tumblr post talking about how preferential voting works in Australia. Those are both a mimetic way of engaging in politics. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it made me think back to there was this huge trend, even a meme a few years ago about calling out clicktivism. You remember there was a, a period where maybe I think more people were paying attention to online p- petitions and then people were like, well, you're not actually doing anything. This kind of view takes, you know, it, it looks at uh, politics not just as the high level stuff, which is, you know, being part of a party, lobbying, that kind of thing, but looks at the kind of micropolitics, doesn't it? It is. It's it's politics at a much smaller, more personal scale. Um, it's brought politics into, you know, the feeds that we engage with willingly every single day, whereas, you know, you might not have had that much exposure to politics even 10 years ago um, if, if you were someone of our, of our age group. And if you weren't intentionally seeking it out, it wouldn't come there. Whereas now, because it sort of seeps through cultural osmosis, you know, you sort of have an idea, even if you don't know even if you didn't know what Ted Cruz's policies were, you sort of got this idea that he was a kind of weird, slimy alien dude who didn't really know how to act because that's how the mimetic culture was portraying him. And it's really interesting to, to, to see the public having the cultural power and the cultural control over that narrative um, to the point where it's starting to get out of hand, where you know the campaign efforts and the ha- campaign groups know that there's, you know, this idea of Hillary Clinton. And so they're like, okay, well, there's this idea of Hillary Clinton online and we're not in control of that narrative. We need to be in control of that narrative. How do we get control of it? And they try to sort of become a part of it and try to engage with with that online narrative, which is immediately seen as inauthentic, piggybacking, you know, you don't get the joke and you're not allowed to make, you're not allowed to be a part of this. This isn't for you. Hey, so maybe turning now to the Australian election quickly. Absolutely, um, yeah. There have been a few defining memes of um, the election so far. I think the one that mm. I've kind of seen is the uh, meme about Scott Morrison and an alleged incident at um, a Macca's in 97. Have any of them jumped out to you? And what do you think they tell you about the election? Personally, I haven't been seeing as many this election because I think people have been cooling off a little bit. I think people are so apathetic about it that they don't even really want to engage with that culture as much as they used to. Um, I remember a lot more memes coming around the last Aussie election than this time. Um, I think the biggest ones that I've seen has been all of the stuff that came around about Captain Getup. Um, and that's on a, you know, because I'm, I'm based in Sydney and my partner's family is from the electorate of Warringah. So all of that stuff was very close to home. Um, <laughs> geographically even. So seeing all of that Captain Get Up stuff, which went so disastrously, which I wouldn't even fully call a meme, but I guess the reaction to it and and, and sort of all of the, the discourse around how the right wing tries to create content, but they don't understand what's happening. Like it's almost so niche that it's it's gone right back around to being mainstream again um, in a weird way. I think also, I think all of the memes and the content around egging has been my favorite. And that's not any one particular meme, but I think because, you know, since the uh, the incident of Fraser Anning's egging, we've seen a few other pollies get eggs. Most recently, Morrison uh, was had, had an attempted egging. And I think that that is representative of the um, apathetic, disillusioned, uh, attitude a lot of Australians have 
towards Australian politics and this election in particular is that the heroes we're holding up aren't politicians in any way. They're common people who are chucking eggs at them. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting election, um, and I'm interested to see how the politics of online react to the ongoing politics. One space where there has been uh, quite a bit of um, meme engagement has been with uh, Clive Palmer and uh, I think he calls it the Palmy Army. He, for for years, has kind of been running um, these Facebook groups that have, in many ways, emulated um, the uh, Donald Trump and the far-right online engagement. It's kind of interesting. I remember when when, um, Donald Trump first came along and people were like, oh, look at this. It's a billionaire businessman trying to get involved in politics. I'm like, we did that first. We had Clive Palmer first. It's funny that it's come back in reverse now that he's kind of emulating a bit what happened online with Donald Trump's support. Have you noticed that? I think because he was able to see how Trump's supporters online helped propel him to success, uh, I think Palmer's been uh, very very astute and very uh, cunning in intentionally emulating that. What else have you noticed that's, I guess, unique about the way that Australians, uh, I guess, are, are, are meme culture? Australia's political culture differs hugely from America's. So compulsory preferential voting, it means you don't have to get people to come out to vote, which means, you know, a a, a lot of the uh, caricature that we have within our mimetic culture of politicians isn't as uh, acidic, it's not as harsh, it's not as hypercritical. It's, um, It's sort of a bit more, look, if you're voting, you know... Chuck these ones, chuck these guys a preference. They're a little party and they're doing all right, eh? As opposed to if you if you don't vote for this, you will die. We we sort of because we have more options, our political culture is a bit more laid back, which means our mimetic culture, I think, is also a bit more laid back. Um also, you know, the other big difference is because the big election in the States is presidential, which is based so much on personality as opposed to in Australia where we don't really get to choose our leaders and we don't get to, you know, vote for who's leading the country. We're just voting for our local member. In that way, it's not as character-focused either. I think we do have the same approach to characterising the parties that the states do. So, you know, the, the, the caricature of the Republican Party and the caricature of the Liberal Party or the caricature of the Greens Party. I think that the cultural consciousness around what the personality and approach of the parties is like is well established. Um, and I think that predates meme culture, um, as it does in the States as well. But I think it's it's altogether, it's a bit looser. We're a smaller country um, and there's, there's fewer people commenting um, Oswald Twitter is a very small place. Yeah, exactly. Now, just to finish off, at the end of mm. your thesis, you make a prediction that memes will only become more influential in terms of their effect and in terms of being recognised as um, a part of political communication. That was in September 2016, of course, um, at the time Donald Trump had not yet won and many people credit um, his a part of his success to, I guess, the online support that came out of it. We're now in 2019... Do you agree that your prediction has come true? And and has anything else changed? I think it has, but I don't think it's come true in the way I thought it would. I I thought there'd be a lot more 
online engagement from the people. But as we learned soon after that election, companies like Cambridge Analytica obviously also foresaw that and decided to use that to influence and leverage. So, so it's, it's almost like you've got a new playing field to enact lobbying, but it's lobbying, like cultural lobbying of the people. And I think that's a really interesting development that I, I didn't pick up on uh, being a reality. But of course it's a reality. As, as, as soon as something is seen as having any, any staying power, of course a bunch of you know rich people are going to try to use that to manipulate events into their, their own desires. I think what has been interesting over the past three years is a disillusionment not just with politics and the political system, but a disillusionment with social media. We've seen huge swathes of people leave Facebook, even if it hasn't been lasting. I think we've seen a, a much bigger shift, especially amongst uh, Gen Zers towards Instagram uh, rather than Facebook anymore as well, um, away from Twitter as well. Um, I think we're about to see a big cultural shift as there's there's talk rumbling in the states of potentially breaking up some of these big social media powerhouses. So I I think we're a lot more aware after what happened in 2016 of the power of online talk and online communication, especially with the rise of the far right through online spaces as well. I think it's something that a, a lot of people have a lot more. Uh, awareness of, and I think that that in itself is changing how we use uh, social media to talk about politics more so than how we talk about politics on social media, um, so to speak. Yeah, of course. And, and just like the memes themselves, it's constantly evolving and it feels like it's changing faster than ever before. Mm -hmm. Emma Balfour, you uh, have been excellent today. Um, if people want to find you on Twitter, where can they get you at? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Balfies, B-A-L-F-I-E-S. I do rarely post about memes, but um, I, I, I do often post about a lot of other things. So you're very welcome to join me there. Yeah, I highly encourage it. All right, Emma, <laughs> thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. And that is it for this edition of the Australian Meme Review. If you like this or if you think someone you know would like this, please recommend it and send them a link so people can actually hear what I'm doing. And now it's time for me to log off. See you soon. Hopefully it won't be another four months.